You can turn your Bible to Revelation chapter 1. I will look at verses 4 through 8 this morning. The text is also printed in the bulletin on the next page. Uh, So last week we began a new series in John's Revelation uh, with something of like an introductory look at the book through the prologue, the first three verses uh, last week. So we talked about how this is a pastoral letter. It's, um, it's written to churches that are facing increasing persecution from the Romans and, and the Jews, and it's written especially in light of the coming destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in AD 70. Uh, we talked about how it's written in a way that fires the imagination, that uh, really is captivating and gripping, and it wakes us up to the spiritual realities that are at work behind the scenes of our earthly experiences. Uh, And it does so in order to evoke a response of persevering faithfulness to Christ. Faithfulness when faithfulness is difficult. uh, uh, Revelation is meant to wake that up in us and to call us to endure in faithfulness to Christ. The intended blessing of the Revelation is to help us to live with God in this world, to live for God and unto God in a world where it looks like evil is just running rampant out of control, where it looks like God's kingdom is weak and being defeated. So this morning, <clears throat> as we continue in our series here at the beginning of it, uh, we'll look at the greeting that John writes to the churches. It's always been common to write some sort of greeting in a letter. Um, hopefully all of you have had experience of writing and receiving actual handwritten letters. Uh, uh, when you're writing a personal letter, it's, it's ordinary, it's, it's normal to write some sort of greeting to identify yourself to address the recipients, to acknowledge and even to celebrate the particular relationship that you have with the recipients of the letter, to express your goodwill, to indicate the general uh, tenor and tone of the letter. Right, so in almost every single letter that's written in the New Testament, written by the apostles to various churches or to individuals, uh, we find some sort of greeting. And there's, some are more robust than others. And I'm going to go ahead and say that this is the most robust of them all. This is the greatest of all of the greetings that any of the apostles write in their letters. You could have a whole sermon series just on this greeting. I'm not going to do the whole thing justice. We're not going to be able to talk about every part of it. Uh, in fact, you, you could probably read this greeting Just these verses here that we're going to look at this morning. You could read this for your morning devotions indefinitely. And and always be more and more astounded at the depth and the richness of it. So so we need to get into it because there's a lot to cover here. So let's pray, then we'll get right into it. Father, you tell us that you're, um, you're always listening to the prayers of your people that you respond to the prayers of your people. You've made yourself available to us when we pray. You've told us to ask you for help, and so we ask for help as we consider your word this morning. We ask for this word to make a difference in our lives. We pray for that help, uh, your Holy Spirit's help, in Jesus' name. Amen. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth, 
To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. See, the Apostle John is writing to the seven churches here that are in Asia. It's the Roman province of Asia, sometimes called Asia Minor. Uh, Really, it's in the geographical area. It's western Turkey today. Turkey is actually a pretty big nation. It's in the western part of that where these churches are. These congregations are each individually addressed in chapters 2 and 3 in what is known uh, as sort of the letters to the churches. Uh, The whole thing is a letter to the churches, but they're addressed individually as congregations in chapters 2 and 3, and we'll get to that. But there's that number uh, seven. He's writing to seven churches. That number seven, it's probably the best symbolic number of all. Right? Lots of numbers that appear here. Lots of numbers in the scriptures that appear as symbolic. They're used in symbolic ways. Seven's the best of them. Have you ever wondered why? I mean, there's something significant about the number seven. Have you ever wondered why seven, the number seven, symbolizes perfection? Why it symbolizes perfection? The scriptures begin with the seven days of the creation week. Scriptures begin with the seven days of the creation week. And the seventh day itself is this special day. It's the day of completion. It's the day of fulfillment and consummation. So the number seven throughout the scriptures actually drives its symbolic significance from that. From the significance of the creation week, the significance of the the fulfillment and the perfection seen in the seven days of the creation week, especially on the seventh day. So so John is writing to seven real congregations, individual congregations, named them. And he's also writing to them as representative of the whole church, the universal church. The seven churches uh, represents the complete church. And so this pastoral letter is for all the churches everywhere and at all times for them and for us. And the first thing John is concerned to communicate in his greeting to them and to us is actually, interestingly, not his own goodwill. That's not the first thing that he's interested in communicating to them, his own goodwill, as the one that's writing this letter to the churches. The first thing he's interested in communicating in his greeting is God's goodwill. God's intentions towards them. God's fundamental stance toward us. His perpetual stance toward us. That's what John wants to communicate here when he says, Grace to you and peace from the triune God. Almost every New Testament letter opens with a greeting that uses these words, grace and peace. Almost every single one. It's a very personal and spiritual way of opening the letters uh, that the apostles probably learned from Jesus, actually. So when he sent out his disciples two by two into the surrounding countryside and the villages uh, during his earthly ministry, 
He says, as you go into these towns and these villages, as you enter a house, greet it. He says, whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. So when they wrote their pastoral letters to the churches, which are also called the household of God, they extended the grace of God and the peace of God in their greeting, first thing. That's what they do. And I think it's important, again, that they don't just say, grace to you and peace, period, from me, period. Give everyone there my love. Give everyone my best. They don't just say that. They greet the churches in the name of the Lord. God sends his best. God sends his love. God blesses you with grace and peace. It means that we relate to one another in the church always in the name of the Lord, always with reference to the Lord. We remember this as we greet one another during the passing of the peace. We're given the privilege of ambassadors, that ambassadorial privilege. We're given the the privilege of uh, priesthood. We're given a priestly privilege of extending not just my peace to you, extending Christ's peace to one another. It's not my goodwill toward you that determines our relationship, how good it is for me to see you. That's not what determines our relationship. It's the goodwill of God. It's the grace of God. It's the peace of God that determines our relationship and that keeps us together in our relationship. And that's good news because, as I said, this is God's fundamental stance toward us. This is God's perpetual stance toward us grace and peace. When we read it, uh, a greeting like this, we're tempted to think, this greeting stuff is perfunctory. It's mere formalities. It's the kind of stuff you get out of the way. Just make sure everybody knows who's talking and who's talking to who or whatever. Uh, right? It's formalities. Let's conclude with formalities and get on to the things that are really consequential in the letter. Right? It's easy to just pass, pass over that. But if you were to read this greeting every morning of your life, I'm not saying you should do that, but if you were to take this up in your morning devotions every day, every morning, then every morning, without exception, without fail, the Holy Scriptures would declare God's posture towards you. The Holy Scriptures would declare God's disposition towards you to be one of gracious favor that establishes peace between you and Him and peace between you and each other in the church. Now, clearly, this matters most to us, this understanding that, that God is, is constantly and perpetually and fundamentally gracious in his disposition to us, grace to you and peace to you from God. It's so critical to understand that. That matters most to us when it's difficult to believe because of the circumstances that we face in our lives because of the difficulty of the circumstances we might face in our life. When we face trials and hardships of various kinds, but especially when they're more explicitly linked to our faith, to our life as Christians, when we're suffering as Christians, when we're suffering as the church, then knowing that God is perpetually predisposed to extend grace to you and peace to you. It's a lifeline, and it buoys us, and it fills us up, and it energizes us. 
in those moments when it's actually difficult to believe. If you were just to look around and see with these eyes how I would estimate, how I would judge my circumstances to be telling me what God's disposition toward me is. So, uh, again, that's the context for this letter that John is writing to the churches. Things are getting hard for them. They're already getting hard. Difficult events are unfolding. Persecution is ramping up, and they're facing the temptation to doubt God's gracious love toward them. So the first thing John wants to assure the church about is God's gracious love toward them. That that's always his predisposition towards them. Grace and peace. Gracious love. He wants God's basic and constant stance of goodwill toward us to be so superlative and overwhelming and all-encompassing that we can be assured that it is true at absolutely any moment, no matter what we're facing in life, no matter what. He doesn't want you to think, when things get hard, this must be because God is withdrawing from me. This, may, this must be because his disposition toward me is changing away from one of grace and peace. This must mean that God must be absent and God must not care when things get difficult for me. He does not want you to think that. So John looks to reinforce our assurance of God's gracious love. And he does so in this greeting by declaring the triune nature of God, the incarnate nature of God, the eternal nature of God, by praising the glory of his finished work of redemption, what he's already done for our salvation. And he does so by drawing the connections between God and us in such a way that we can see God's life Actually, that determines our life. God's story determines our story. The gospel determines the way that we interpret the events in our lives. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. So here John is <clears throat> he's starting to talk about the triune God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And he's speaking about the Father, and he's, uh, he doesn't say Father, but he's speaking about him as the one who has eternal being in himself. The one who has eternal being in himself. He uses this same language again of God in verse 8 at the end of our passage, so it serves as sort of important bookends to this greeting. It really gives a shape to the whole thing. He's riffing on God's uh, personal name, his covenant name. God has made himself known by this name, Yahweh, which means I am. It means I'm the one who is. I, I am who I am. I am that I am. I'm the one with being in and of myself. God's name tells forth his being. He's the God who has being in himself, always has, always will. And we could talk a lot about this, but it's more than just an interesting philosophical statement. John is uh, saying it for a reason. He's saying that God's eternal being is the foundation for us trusting that he is always present in every moment. He can't not be. He always is. The order emphasizes, uh, it emphasizes the present, emphasizes the now, right? Usually when we talk about things in terms of all of time or all of eternity, we start, we say that the past and the present and the future in order, Right? That's maybe what you'd expect, a flow of time you'd expect. But 
the order emphasizes the present. He's the God who is. He is. And he's the God who's always rushing in from the past and from the future to be with you in the present. He's the God who's, whose work in the past makes him dependable in the present. He's the God whose knowledge of the future and promises about the future takes away our fear in the present. He's the God who has never not been there for us in the past. He's the God who will never not be there for us in the future. Therefore, he's the God who will always be with us in every moment that's called now, because he is. There's no time when you will ever find yourself outside of his time. There's no present when he will not be present to you. There's no circumstance in your life, there's no circumstance in the life of the church when you can say, God isn't here, he's withdrawn from me, he doesn't see me, he doesn't care. The grace and peace, verse 4, uh, continuing on, grace and peace from the seven spirits who are before his throne. So now, <clears throat> John um, has a habit of speaking very strangely about the Holy Spirit. He calls him by different names and referring to him very strangely here as the seven spirits. It's not that there are more than one Holy Spirit in the Trinity, right? He's one divine person. But uh, John speaks again with that, the symbolism of that number, the symbolism of the number seven. He's the spirit of absolute divine fullness. And in his sevenness, he matches up perfectly with the sevenness of the churches that were just mentioned. The letter's written to the seven churches, and the greeting is from the seven spirits. There's this, there's this matchup. Right? The spirit fills the church with the divine fullness of God, all of it in completion, in perfection. In John's vision, uh, a little later, this vision, it says that the churches are the seven golden lampstands, and the Spirit is the fire. He's the light. He's the fire burning in the lamps, on the lampstands. So if the seven spirits are before God's throne in this heavenly vision, seven spirits are on seven lampstands before God's throne. The lampstands the churches are before God's throne in God's heavenly presence because the church is the vessel of the Holy Spirit. The church is filled with the Holy Spirit. Through the Holy Spirit, we have access to God in heaven. This is something you should believe, even though you can't see it with your eyes. And verse 5, grace and peace from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings on earth. So Jesus... He's the second person in the Trinity. Usually he's the third one listed here for reasons we can't really get into, but uh, he's God's son. He's God's son incarnate. He's God himself in the flesh, God as a human being. And as such, Jesus is the faithful witness. He's the one who gives true testimony about God, about who God is, about what God is like, about his character and his intentions and his actions. Jesus gives faithful witness about God, and Jesus is the head of a new humanity. He's the head of a new creation because of his resurrection from the dead. Which uh, one commentator, Vern Poitras, says, 
his resurrection, it's the foundation and the pattern for the promised resurrection of believers. He's the firstborn from the dead, which means that there will be brothers and sisters that follow him because of his resurrection and in the likeness of his resurrection. We also will be reborn from the dead like he was reborn from the dead when he was raised from the dead on the third day. So he's the head of a new humanity and a new creation because he's this firstborn of the dead. There's so much more to be explored in those two titles, but today I want to focus on the last one, the third one, that Jesus is the ruler of kings on earth. So right there, I think, um, John settles some of the major debates about how to interpret Revelation. People disagree about the timing of all the visions and the order, chronological order of all the visions and uh, the meaning of this thousand-year kingdom that happens in Revelation 20, toward the end of the book. That's where it's talked about, this kingdom. And because it happens toward the end of the book, does that mean that it happens towards the end of history? That hasn't happened yet. It's still out there in the future, this kingdom. Well, right here we find that John isn't talking about the kingdom of Christ as if it were some far distant future thing that hasn't happened yet. Jesus is the ruler of kings on earth. Jesus is king of kings. Jesus is Lord of lords. He has made us a kingdom, verse 6. He's already done that. The reason why it's difficult for us to believe that, difficult for us to understand that, because it doesn't appear the way you would expect that. We don't perceive it the way that uh, we would expect to perceive it. We assume for him to rule as king on earth, to be the ruler of all the kings on earth, it means that the kings on earth must be Christians trying to serve Christ. Really, throughout the Scriptures, we're given a vision of Christ as king. He's the one who rules in the midst of his enemies. He hasn't converted them all yet. He still rules over them. For example, in Psalm 2, the nations rage. The people's plot in vain. The kings take counsel together against Christ. But the Lord laughs because he's crowned his king. He's set him up already. And the rulers of the earth are warned that they should serve the one who is already their king. He is your king. Whether you serve him or not, you should serve him. Jesus is the ruler of kings who oppose him. That's been evident throughout the history of the church. It's evident especially in the events that were unfolding for these people here, people, uh, people oppose him. Rulers, the kings of the earth oppose Jesus. He's the ruler of them anyway. He's the ruler of kings who oppose him. Jesus is seated at God's right hand. He's seated there as king far above all authority and power and dominion, says in Ephesians 1. He rules the world even though his subjects are unruly and resent him. And here's the great encouragement to be had from knowing this. The church faces opposition. Always has. The church faces temptations, trials. The the church faces persecution, sometimes to the point of death. But Jesus, anticipating all of this, said in John's Gospel, chapter 16, in the world, you will have tribulation, 
But take heart, I have overcome the world. Even in all the apparent chaos that we face in the world, even in all the apparent evil that appears to be running rampant over all the world, Jesus is not out of control. He's the sovereign Lord who rules over all. Those in power in this world, say governments and leaders in every land, they wield a power that we can see, a power that we can understand, a power that we're afraid of. Their power often seems much more real to us, seems more immediate to us, more urgent. But Christ's power is infinitely greater, and he laughs at their power. He exercises his lordship in ways we can't always understand. But if we were caught up in a vision of all of it, then we would praise God in heaven for his wisdom and his power. We'd praise the king who loves us and laid his life down for us, and we would say, in verse 6, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. <clears throat> Jesus already has the victory. And as his kingdom in the world, our lives are patterned after his. So what happened to him happens to us. That's the good news. That's the good news of the gospel. That whatever happens to Jesus happens to us because of our relationship. Because he's established a relationship like that by his grace. He's the king, we're his kingdom. He's the great high priest, we are priests like him. We're priests in his name. We serve the Lord in his name. Bearing the gospel message of reconciliation in our lives and through our service. He accomplished his work of redemption through his sacrifice. We participate in his work. We participate in his own mission through our sacrifice. We defeat the enemy even as it seems we've been defeated, we win by losing, just like Jesus. We become like God through suffering service. We become like Jesus. The way things have gone with the king is the way things are going with his kingdom, with his people, with his church. That's good news. That's reassuring. And this is what makes all our trials and hardships in this world worth it. We're given the assurance and the privilege of knowing the Lord Jesus Christ and becoming like him in every way. It says in verse 8, <clears throat> I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God. And I think this is a reference not just to the Father, but to the Trinity and to Jesus Christ himself the one who is the Lord and God. He's the one saying this. I am the Alpha and the Omega, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. So Alpha, probably most of you know, the first letter of the Greek alphabet. Uh, omega is the last letter of the Greek alphabet. And so what the triune God is saying here with this, you know, the alphabet, it's the, it's the, the basic way of communicating boils down to the alphabet. The basic way of speaking and, uh, and talking and giving a message boils down to the alphabet. And here you've got the alphabet bounded by the first and last letters. Everything, everything that could be communicated here 
from God to us. What the triune God is saying, what the God-man, the Lord Jesus, is saying, is that his nature, his goodwill, his intentions, his actions, his story as communicated in the gospel, this, is, this sums up our life. This sums up our life. This sums it all up for us. His reality, who he is, he is the Alpha and the Omega. He's the one who always is. He's always present. His reality defines our reality at every moment. His story determines and shapes our story at every moment. He himself is the first word and he's the last word. He's the final word. He's all the words on this subject of what you can expect in your life. The, the whole of life in its entirety, every single moment of time, you can expect him. You can expect him. You can trust him to define your life, to define your experiences, maybe in ways you don't understand, but he's doing it. He's the one who's doing it. He's defining everything about you. You can believe and rely upon his gracious love as his fundamental stance towards you at all times, his perpetual stance towards you, even when those times are hard. Because the one who is and who was and who is to come, the Alpha and the Omega, he's Jesus. He's, he's God with you. He's God for you. He's God who loves you and says, my life is yours. So be encouraged. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we could spend more time in your word always. Uh, we pray that you'd make us the kind of people who are more and more attentive to your word, more and more longing to hear what it is you declare to us in your word. Even these, these greetings, these greetings that seem inconsequential, just formalities to be gotten out of the way uh, to get to the good stuff, we pray that you would never let us overlook anything from your word because all of it declares you, yourself, to us, to be gracious, to be the God who establishes peace between us and yourself, to be the God who establishes peace on earth between people in your name, in the church, in your kingdom. We pray that you would make us the kind of people who always want to hear from you, the Alpha and the Omega. We always want to hear your good news to us, your good word, the first word over our lives and the last word over our lives. We want to hear about Jesus and his life, his story, his gospel, shaping and determining our reality. We pray that you would grant us faith to believe it, especially when it's difficult to believe, when it seems to us or maybe to other, others in our lives that um, it must be true that you've forsaken us, that you've left us, that you're absent, that you don't care, you don't see, but you're present at every moment. Your word declares it. We pray that you'd help us to believe it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.